So I'm going to give you a brief recap of where we've been uh, with Ruth to kind of set the stage a little bit more. So if you remember in Ruth chapter 1, very simply, uh, there was, you, you can even just open, you, you probably have a two-page book. Ruth is typically like two and a half pages. You probably just turn over. Ruth chapter 1, there was a famine in the land, right? So you have a family that leaves. You have Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons. And they leave the country and go to Moab, which is not an, an, it's not an Israelite town, right? It's a foreign town. And these sons marry, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. About 10 years later, they are childless and both, both sons die. So now you have, and also Naomi's husband. So now you have three widows. And the plan is, well, what, what do we do? Where do we go? We don't have anything to do, right? We talked about how Naomi speaks much of this. This was God. This was God's providence. He, he brought this. If you just look at verses 19 to the end here, that the Lord has done this. He's, he's brought us back to Bethlehem because there's food there now. So, but now we don't have anybody. We don't have anything. And we're... We're alone, and we don't have anything. So chapter 1 is a span of 10 years, right? It's, just a, it's a very fast chapter, but it's a 10-year span. And after that, chapters 2, 3, and 4 are almost just, it seems to be just one-day window. So they're very, very detailed days. In number chapter 2, we first discover a man named Boaz. He's a godly man, a worthy man who has the ability to redeem. And to redeem in this context means someone who is a distant relative, who, do, who, doesn't, who is a widow, who doesn't have any? She doesn't have a, a husband or she doesn't have property that manage. She needs help and she's alone. So God's program, instead of sending her to like um, a welfare program, is actually, no, I'm, I'm going to take care of my people. So he does. And that's someone named Boaz. And he's, he's a very wealthy man and a very rich man. So Naomi is rather happy for her daughter-in-law. And in chapter 3, you remember she sends... Ruth to do a very interesting thing. Hey, Boaz is working in the field. Um, after he's done working, just go lay by his feet while, while he's asleep. Okay, so she does. So she lays by his feet. And if you remember, Boaz, of course, wakes up. And the Bible says, behold. So he goes, whoa, there's a, there's a beautiful lady by my feet. And you know, dating in Israel is so easily they throw about your feet. So it's very easy to get engaged in Israel. And this is where we are. Is he says, Ruth, I, I will take care of you. Either I will redeem you, I will marry you and take care of you or somebody else will there's another family relative closer than you closer than me either he will do it or i will and this is where we're at in chapter four this is what's going to happen is what is what is boaz going to going to do with ruth what's going to happen to ruth this is better than a hallmark story this whole story is a love story but certainly about jesus christ and that's where we come to today so today we're going to see three marks of redemption so to be redeemed to be to be purchased to be bought that's what we're going to look at today so first, redemption is arranged. Look at verses 1 through 6. So first we have Boaz's offer. Look at just the first few verses here. Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, remember the, the other family member who's closer, right, came by. He just happened to come by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. So he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling this land. So he's saying, hey, uh, oh, good timing. You, you came by. Just come sit here. Uh, so he does. So Boaz keeps his word. He tells Ruth, hey, I'm go you're going to be redeemed. Either I'm going to do it or this guy's going to do it. So let's take care of it. So he's faithful to his word. And again, behold, if you notice in verse 1, behold, this is just another way of saying God sent him. Just look. This is very clear. He came to sit, and the guy just happened to walk by. 
by God's appointment, right? Boaz and the other redeemer just happened to come. Just a reminder that even your daily interactions, brothers, are designed. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And my favorite verse in the, the ESV that I have, it actually kind of rhymes at the end, but Proverbs nineteen twenty one: Many are the plans in the mind of the man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So Boaz sits, the other redeemer comes by, and as you probably know, every love story always has, well, there's the other guy we got to deal with, right? There's always another lover in his love story, and it's the guy you hope that doesn't win. You hope he, he, you hope he fails, right? He's the other guy. Well, he's so insignificant, the Bible doesn't even give him a name. So not that important, apparently, because he comes by, and yeah, just uh, Mr. So-and-so comes, and he just sits down, and that's about it. So look at verse 2 here. They sit down. They sit at the town gates, kind of like the town hall. And Deuteronomy chapter 21, this, this is where things were done uh, publicly. This is the town hall meeting, right? So they sit down, and he gets multiple witnesses for a legal matter. You need at least two or three, according to the Bible. And Boaz says, one of our relatives named Naomi, she, she needs to be, she has a daughter-in-law who needs to be redeemed. She's selling land. He, first he says she's selling land, right? Number two, we see, the Redeemer's offense. So Boaz's offer, now the Redeemer's offense. Look at verses 4 through 6. First, he's drawn in, right? She's selling land. He goes, oh, cool. I would love some more property. I could get in on that. that that's a great deal, right? He's excited for the land. Boaz says, if you redeem it, redeem it. But if, if you will not tell me, that I may know. For basically, I'm next in line, right? And what does the Redeemer say? I will redeem it. I will take the land, right? And look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, oh, I can't redeem it. Never mind. I can't do that. So first he's drawn in, and then he's repelled, right? When it comes to the land, what's he say? Sign me up, coach. I want all that land, all that field, all that property, all that wealth. That's what I want, right? He more land means more property, a greater inheritance for his family, a better family name, greater wealth, more ownership. What f fool would it say more land? Yeah, I'll take that land. Are you kidding me? Of course I'll buy that, right? Of course he would buy it. But then Boaz says, oh, but actually when you buy the land, you get Ruth. You get the Moabite. She's the widow. And you need to keep the name, the family name in her, in her family. So he desires the benefits, but not the person, right? His interest is not loving or true. It's actually for personal gain. It's kind of offensive, right? Hey, you get Ruth too. Never mind. Don't want it. Keep the land. I don't want that. Just keep it. I mean, it's okay. Is Ruth that like unattractive? Like, calm down. No, that's, that's not what it is. It's a Moabite widow. But what's more interesting is why he does it. He would rather save his own skin. He actually says he'd rather save his own inheritance. Look at verse 6. Well, if I do this, I, I, I'm going to lose my inheritance. I'm going to harm myself in doing this, right? I can't do that. It's not loving. It's actually very self-centered, right? This is a loss in his sight. The commentator that I read says this, that the redemption of the land would require the son. So if this redeemer marries Ruth and they have a son, he gets the rights to the land because he's the actual heir, right? Which means who doesn't get the land? This no-name person, right? Well, why would I want, I don't even get the land? I got married this, forget it. 
I'm losing. This is a lose-lose to me, right? So he would lose a lot of money to purchase the land, maybe even lose some of his own to fork it over to buy the land. And when the son's here, he would get nothing. So the redeemer is both able and willing, but he ditched the opportunity. This is also often a very common response to Christianity and the message of the gospel that you maybe have seen, maybe you're aware of, that is also very invalid. So what we do as Christians, we say, come to Jesus. You can can have forgiveness of sins. You can have adoption. You can have abundant life, we say. Your wrath can be removed. Your eternity is secure. Nothing to worry about. Untouched, right? And what, what what could be said? Oh, no hell. Yeah, that'd be great. Of course I'd take that. And yet, when Christ is presented, he's often repulsed. So what's common is it's common for us to to want the benefits of Jesus, but not who Christ is. We want him, maybe you would say, as Savior, but not as Lord. But Jesus will not be split in half, will he? It's either all of Christ or none of Christ. And this, we would say, is true folly. Meaning some with the benefits of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus. Instead, they settle for, for worldliness, for, for other fields, for vanity, for the other pleasures. This is an, it's what some people call an almost Christian. And if you know, an almost Christian is not a Christian. There are no almost Christians. It's like saying, I'll take the husk, just throw out the kernel. I don't want the kernels, just give me the husk. That's what I want. I want the outside. I want the shell. I don't want the inside. I want, I want the, the, the husk, not the kernel, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have ever gone to the beach before. I hope you have because it's beautiful. Um, I've never found like a, a pearl. I've always wanted to find an oyster and go, hey, there's a pearl. Do you think it'd be strange if I was walking on the beach and thought, Kelly, there, there's an oyster right there. Pick it up and there's a pearl. I go, <laughs> throw that pearl. Give me that shell. You would think I'm a nut. Well, rightly, you rightly should. Jesus says something very similar, something Rather alarming as well. He says this in Matthew 16. Whoever would save his life will what? He will lose it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Instead, Jesus says to deny yourself. What's it profit you to gain another field but to die eternally? Sin blinds our eyes, right? It, It makes... It dulls our reasoning. Whenever you sin, don't you think, why did I do that? That was dumb. Sin just, it dulls. You're not sharp, right? You're just, you're not thinking when you sin, right? Satan baits the hook with delicious food, doesn't he? Thomas Watson said this, that Satan gives good names to sin. Oh, that doesn't sound that bad now. I could, I could do that. I mean, yeah, it's not great, but it sounds better when you say it that way, right? Satan's deceiving, he tricks us, and our flesh leaps for the the encounter. But for believers, all that is in the gospel, the forgiveness, adoption, eternal life, abundant life, those are all good, but what do we come to Christ ultimately for? What do you get? You get him. You get Christ. Those are all means to Christ, right? Jesus, he's the treasure buried in a field, right, that you sell off for. It's him. He's the pearl of great price that you sell off for. It's it's him, right? It's not just what he offers. It's him. Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. Why is dying gain? Because you get him. 
Because right now you're, you're distanced. It's, it's, it's the engagement period. This is hard. I want to I, I be wedded to him, right? Because Christ is our all. He is, he is heaven. One writer said this, it'd be better to be in hell with Christ than heaven without him. I mean, that's our heart, isn't it? Like, he's not there. I don't want to go. He's the pearl. Christ is our all in all. The gospel's like, the gospel's like a necklace, and Jesus is the jewel. Right? That's a pretty necklace, but I want, I want that jewel. That's what I want. I want, I want the center. I want, I want the pearl. Right? The gospel's the body. God is the soul. The benefits of Jesus are all means to receiving and treasuring Christ. So even now, Jesus stands ready to receive sinners who've not come all the way. He receives pretenders, he receives hypocrites, he receives liars, deceivers, and false comers. What did Jesus say? Come to me all, not uh, just most, and just the people who can. It's all who are weary, right? Hypocrite, come. Half, halfway, come. Pretender, come, right? He will receive you. We receive Christ clothed in his gospels. And so the question I must ask you this morning is, have you closed with Christ? He offers full redemption, full forgiveness, abundant life. But you get that and you get Christ. Paul said it this way. May our, we count everything as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've not done that, repent. Don't be a fool. I'll just set it for a field. Don't be a fool. Don't be a pretender. Close with Christ. So this is Boaz's offer and the Redeemer's offense. I don't want Ruth. I want the field, right? Well, that's very cute of you, isn't it? But now we see there's good news. There's, there's another Redeemer. Number two, so redemption accomplished. Look at verse 7 through 12. So first, let's see what Boaz bought. Look at verses 7 through 8 here for what's going on next. So after he says no, verse 7 gives us a little kind of like a, a pastor's commentary. So they're right there saying, hey, just so you know, this is what's going on. Look at verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning and redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. <clears throat> so the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he drew off his sandal. Now, I don't want you to take off in your shoes, please. But this is, this is a way of saying uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if, if, the, if the widow approached the Redeemer and he says, uh, I'm not getting involved with that. I'm hard pass. The sandal comes off, and the widow actually spits in his face. It, it's, it's supposed to be shameful. How dare you? Are you you're going to ditch your family because you want to keep? That's selfish, right? So it seems to me there's no spitting in the face, probably either because Ruth isn't there, or Bud is just being very, very gentle. Either way, this is supposed to be a shameful act. In verse 8, he says, buy it for yourself. You buy it, I don't want it. And I think Bo is probably thinking, well, isn't that a coincidence? That's exactly what I wanted to happen. Mission accomplished. I get the girl in the field. That's what I wanted, right? That's what he came for. Just the way he hoped. This is a, a happy ending, isn't it? He loved her to the end, just as he promised. In Ruth 3.13, he says, I will redeem you. Either, he, either I will or someone else will. And Boaz is the godly man. He keeps his word. Meaning, I think, that Boaz is fully aware, if I get into this and we have a son, there goes my inheritance too. Boaz knows what he's doing. This, this is costly for me. He's, he's not off the hook. He knows it's going to cost a lot. He knows Ruth's offspring gets the reward. He knows that. He says, I will rather suffer loss. You get the field. I'll take the bride. That's what I want. He pays the redemption price, and others get the reward. 
This is an act of selfless love, isn't it? A willing love. Ultimately, Boaz came ultimately for a bride. I want the bride. That's what he wants. <clears throat> and then he turns, as it were, the next verse to all the elders and all the people. So now there's a, a big town meeting. So if you remember when Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19 says the whole town came. So like, hey, town welcome. And now they're all here to see Boaz by back. to. This is a huge ordeal. This is very important. This is a, a town meeting, right? <clears throat> I think now it's easy to see why they don't name this guy. Would you want your like, oh yeah, that was my uncle, that nameless fool. Aren't you glad they left his name out? So we don't read it and go, yeah, Larry couldn't buy anything. Larry was bad. But they kept the name out. Again, I think it's why, because it was a public gathering. They all knew who it was, but for us not to know, seems to be okay. Look at Boaz says in verses 9 and 10. I want you to notice the repeated word here. He says the word, I will buy it all. I will buy all of this and also Ruth. So Boaz fulfills the work of the Redeemer, right? It's his complete redemption. He satisfies and secures everything. Isn't God's providence very sweet? It's almost like chapter one's just, just gone. None of that sorrow, no more famine, no more death. It's just, I mean, it's swallowed up and gone. It's sweet providence, right? We see this again and again and again in the book of Ruth. Probably my favorite hymn, uh, maybe of all time. It's a pretty big thing to say, but my favorite hymn probably of all time is <clears throat> God Moves in Mysterious Way, and it says this. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That's providence, isn't it? Man, that stings. That's bitter. But it's going to be sweet. It's going to be good. And this is what the book of Ruth is showing us. Number two, so what, first what Boaz bought, now what Boaz becomes. Look at verse 11 through 12. He becomes the redeemer, right? He actually, he goes full. He buys everything. Then all the people, in verse 11, who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Then verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Jesus. So they're saying, we hope you're like these great women of old. We, we hope it's awesome redemption. We hope you have great fruit, literally great offspring. They bless and they praise Boaz for his redemption, right? Redemption is accomplished and now it's celebrated. They rejoice at the purchase and the power and the love that Boaz has. So they're saying, praise be to Boaz. Look what he did. Man, he's so good. Look, at, look what he did. And they compare them to two Old Testament figures, if you notice the names here. It's Rachel and Leah. Then you see the name Tamar from Judah. And their offspring is Perez. These are about 900 years ago. Uh, and to Ruth and to Boaz, just a quick recap here. Rachel and Leah were two wives of Jacob. Yes, he had two wives. Yes, that was wrong. Okay. Uh, Rachel was barren, just like Ruth, right? And Leah and Rachel both bore to Jacob 12 sons. Now, what was Jacob later renamed to? You remember his name? Israel. So these are literally the 12 tribes. This is... This is Israel, this is the people of Israel, the Jews, this is them right here, this is where they came from, right? So they're saying, may your offspring be as great as that. That's a pretty big claim. 
It's going to be foundational to everything. And then Tamar. Tamar was a non-Israelite, like a Gentile, kind of like Ruth, right? She became a widow, and Perez was the firstborn of the twins of Judah. And if you look at the end of the book of Ruth here, the genealogy is he is related to Boaz in, as a relative. So the people say in verse 11, may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Your translation probably says what the Hebrew actually says, which is, may you be famous. Oh, you're great. May you be famous. May your name never be forgotten. This act of redemption is praiseworthy. It deserves great fame. Causes great joy. May his name live forever. Can you smell what this is about? Is this chapter about Boaz? You almost just like taste it, right? Who's the redeemer who we just, oh, I hope his name lives forever. I don't know, his work is so good. Let's praise him forever. Who, who is that? It's not Boaz, right? It's not about him. This is about Jesus, right? Isn't it clear? Our great redeemer is Jesus. Who has the right of redemption but Christ alone? More than Boaz, the cost of redemption for Jesus would cost him his life. He was born to die, right? Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not a field, not money, his life. To redeem an uncountable. The book of Revelation says it's uncountable. People are bought by Christ. How many? You can't even count that many people. That's how huge it is. Jesus didn't just buy one woman. He bought billions upon trillions of uncountable people for himself. Redemption was accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. Notice again that Boaz laid down his right, and he gets no benefit. I want the bride, you get the benefits. Does that sound Christianly to you? I hope that it does. Jesus lays down his life that we might get his benefits. Galatians chapter 3 says Jesus becomes a curse for us. He became sin for us. He suffered for us. We who are the helpless Moabite, we're like Ruth. We're just, we're nothing flashy. We're a Gentile. We're a widow. We're not praiseworthy. But all that Christ is, he is for us. You probably know the song. Perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. All that Christ merited, he merited for you. So that he gets the praise, we get the payment, right? Jesus pays the debt, we get the field. He gets the glory, we get the good. That's, that's, that's the gospel every time. It's, he does the work, we get the benefit. He does everything. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve. Every day he's serving you. All that's credit to us. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Thanks be to God. A perfect savior for ruined sinners. There's a man named John Flavel who, I don't really like these kind of, I'll be kind of preface this real quick. Whenever people give like conjecture, oh, this probably happened. I get about like things we don't know about. I get very, be careful what you're saying here, but he wrote an illustration. It's pretend. What was it like for the father and the son to talk about sending Jesus? Like, what would that be like? He just, he made this, this is not real. This is not biblical. He said, this is an illustration, so he's telling you this, but this is what he wrote. I want you to hear this. This is a talk between the Father and the Son before Jesus comes. This is probably some of the most beautiful things you're ever going to hear, I hope. My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. 
Justice demands for them or will satisfy itself in their eternal ruin, which shall be done for these souls. And then Christ returns. Oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them. But rather that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe. Lord, bring them all in that there be no reckoning with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. But my son, if thou undertake for them, and thou must reckon to pay the last might, the last bit of wrath, expect no abasements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son says this, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. That's your redemption, isn't it? Bring in all their bills. Pay it all. But if I spare them, I can't spare you. That's how I want it. Jesus wasn't spared so he could spare you. All your bills. He's the famous one in Bethlehem, right? Jesus is the praise of Bethlehem. He's, he's our Christ, right? And Jesus came from heaven. He came and sought her to be his holy bride. Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. So Jesus came for his bride. And like Boaz, our Lord was willing in love. Are you a wayward Christian? Is, is your love for Christ the same as it was the first day you were converted? Do you have days where it's like you wane? Man, I just, I don't feel like reading my Bible right now. I don't feel like praying sometimes. Jesus gave himself willingly for us, waning, inconsistent, <laughs> ignorant, spotted bride. Jeremiah 31 says this, that God has loved you with an everlasting love. If you're in Christ, your love, his love for you is everlasting. It doesn't wane like ours does for him. It doesn't taper off. It's not hot and cold some days. It's the same. You are his treasured possession. The church is his treasured possession. Don't divorce Jesus from his church. I love Christ, but man, I can't stand that church, people. Don't do that. Jesus died for that bride. Speak well of the bride. That's, I, I would never say, man, I love you, but your wife drives me nuts. What would you say? You'd slap me in the face, right? You should. Don't separate Jesus from his people. He loves them. He bought them. Therefore, we should treat other believers the same way. Jesus bought them too. So we see what Boaz bought and now what he became. Now redemption applied. So redemption arranged, accomplished, now applied. First, look at verse 13 through 17. Let's look at the gift. Let's see what happens. So after he says, I will buy her. Okay, what happens next? I'm glad you asked. It's very simple. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So he took Ruth, and she became his wife. Boaz loved Ruth, right? He sought her. Uh, he gets the girl. He won, right? I bought the bride. I get her, right? In 10 years, 10 years of no children, they get married, kid, right? It just it says the Lord gave her conception, right? By the Lord's will. First Samuel chapter 2 about Another barren woman, she says this when the Lord gives her life. The Lord gives life. So whether it's Rachel 
or Hannah from 1 Samuel, or Elizabeth, or Mary for us in the book of Matthew. The book of Ruth affirms again and again that God is the ruler, the, the sovereign over life and death. He creates famines and he sends food in Ruth chapter 1. He arranges circumstances so Ruth and Boaz will just happen to meet in chapters 2 and 3. And he gives life in Ruth chapter 4. There is not a minute that goes by of your life that God is not governing your life. Isn't that good news? What did Jesus say? Not even a sparrow falls. Not some random bird in the middle of nowhere falls apart from the will of your Father. So take heart. You have a loving, wise, gracious Father over every minute of your life. Isn't that comforting? Don't worry about anything. He's good. Verse 14 through 17, we see what happens next is we see the blessing is shared between Ruth and Naomi. There's another blessing here. So there's there's another praise in this book. This is actually the seventh blessing in this little tiny book, starting from chapter one. So there's a lot of blessing, a lot of mercy in this book. There's grace upon grace. There's more prayers and praise in this little book than many books have. In verse 14, it seems to be the people are being mixed Who's, look at verse 14, it's kind of confusing. The woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. So, okay, so is the Lord's name to be remembered? Is it Ruth's? No, is it Boaz you're talking about? Are you talking about the kid? We don't really know who it is, right? But it seems to be there's a blending of the lines to say all that is is God's blessing, right? It seems to be what's going on. They give birth to a son named Obed. The women of the, the neighborhood in verse 17 come to celebrate. Obed means worshiper. They have a son. If we look at verse 17, Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David, right? This entire narrative is set up just for this moment right here, that there would be a great king named David who would slay Goliath, write psalms, and speak prophetically. This is, all this book is set for this text right here. Very quickly here, let's look at this genealogy, verse 18 through 22. Starting with Perez, that's the name they said, may you be like. Ruth begins with a prologue, then ends with an epilogue. So first it's Ruth and Naomi and this two sons and the husband, and now it ends with another genealogy, right? The stage was set entirely for chapter 4. This is, this is a roster, this is God's team, this is the roster he made in verse 18 through 22. This should remind us then that these people are ordinary names. That God works through ordinary people to do ordinary things, right? God completes great acts of power through ordinary miraculous deeds. Typically, God moves through mundane, regular things. Now, many of us probably wish our life was like the book of Exodus, right? See a flame of fire and wake up. See a big cloud. You see manna fall from heaven. Yep, just a regular Tuesday. Bread fall from heaven. Don't you wish? You see a burning bush at work every now and then. I mean, don't you, you, you wish it was like that? It was more of a spectacular, bright day? But it's not. Instead, our, our, book is, our life is kind of like the book of Ruth. It's silence. There's pain. There's faith. There's obedience. There's families. There's work. There's just an ordinary life. And yet, we don't often see God's providence until the end of our life. Uh, Hebrew, when it's written, is written backwards. Did you know that? Well, now you know. It's written, so when you read it, you read right to left. It's very confusing. Uh, 
But John Flavel said this, the province of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. So had Ruth and Naomi known the end of the story, they would have rejoiced in their sorrow, but they trusted the Lord. Therefore, in your regular Christian life, know that your daily obedience to God is very pleasing. There's nothing ordinary about your life. Isn't that good? Like, when you wash dishes, this is a good thing. This is what God, this is, this is obedient. When you go to work, God's accomplishing his purpose. Isn't that comforting? The normal Christian life is precious to God. Be faithful in your calling as a mother or a father or a child or a caretaker or a worker. Be faithful as a Christian. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of who? God, right? That's ordinary life. When I uh, used to live in California with my family, uh, there was this candy store in in this mall. Every time I walked by, I just, I want to be in that candy store right now. I want to eat those gummy sharks. All of them. I want to eat these little strips of like sugary everything. Uh, but I was only window shopping. I just look and say, man, I wish I could be in there, right? Sometimes the work of redemption is often like that. We think, man, how does Jesus did that outside? Of, outside, how is that get applied to me? I, I want that applied to me. I, I, can't, I don't want just window shop. I want it to be applied to my heart, right? Well, the Spirit applies the work of Christ to you. The evidence of the work of grace in your heart is that you become partakers with Jesus. Like the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, you are wedded to Christ by faith. Faith unites Jesus to us and us to him. That's why when people get married, we say this is a picture of the gospel. So every marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. The question is, is yours a good picture? Is it is an accurate depiction? Because everyone is, right? The good news is that Christians are not forced to love things that they hate. You ever think that, man? The outside world looks at Christianity like this. They have no fun. They just mope around and say, well, I can't lie. I can't sin today. I've got to just be mopey about it. You know how it looks on the outside? If you've ever seen any kind of TV shows, yeah, Christians are these lame, boring people who do things they don't want to do and don't do things they want to do. Is that true? Is that what a Christian is? Amen. No, that's not what a Christian is. That is Pharisee, evil, wrong. Right? That's not correct. Christianity is God sweetens it for you. Right? He sweetens you. Why? Well, you're born again. You're a new creature. God gives you the desire for himself. Uh, Psalm 119 has 176 verses saying, I love the word. I love the law. Really? Leviticus? Yep. Love it. Because he has a new, his new desires, right? First John chapter 5, verse 3 says that God's commandments are not burdensome. They are sweet as honey. They are more precious than gold. Ruth never looked at her ring finger saying, does Boaz really love me? I don't know. I, mean, I hope so. Her heart knew. She was bound to him. Likewise, the Christian life, you don't have to look. Man, when was I converted again? I just don't Forget what it look like. God gives you the desires for him. The new heart that you're born with as a believer, when you're born again, it's pre-programmed to love Jesus. And the fruit of this applied redemption is love for Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Right? It's love. It's not just don't lie. It's, Lord, why would I want to lie? I want to be like you. I want to be truthful, right? That's the Christian life. All of your life then, is marked and guided 
just like this genealogy. Look at the genealogy one last time, then we'll close here. It ends with Jesse fathered David. The whole thing was mapped out for that one name. One life, you are just a name, essentially. Merry Christmas. Uh, you're, you're just a name. You're a person in a genealogy. But you don't exist for yourself. Uh, the book of Matthew steals this genealogy and just copies and pastes it, right? And the book of Matthew says this is where Christ came from, right? So you exist ultimately to make much of Christ. Well, you exist. You don't, you don't exist for yourself. You don't exist for anything else but to glorify and make Jesus look really, really good. Let's pray.